Welcome to Fertility and Sterility On Air, the podcast where you can stay current on the latest global research in the field of reproductive medicine. This podcast brings you an overview of this month's journal, in-depth discussion with authors, and other special features. FNS On Air is brought to you by the Fertility and Sterility Family of Journals in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. Hello and welcome to another episode of FNS Unplugged. I am Pietro Bordoletto, media editor for FNS Reports and interactive associate in chief for FNS. As always, I'm joined by these two guys, Daylon and Blake. Daylon, Blake, how are you guys? I'm doing well. A lot of problems in the world these days, uh, not least of which is uh, recurrent pregnancy loss. So I- I'm excited to talk about that on the show today. Blake, how you doing? Can't complain. I mean, I, I could, but I choose not to. So I'm doing well. Great to see you all. Our listeners will all be pleased to hear that Blake is actually now a board-certified reproductive endocrinologist. So his segments, I think, carry a little bit more weight to the listeners and just a little bit more trustworthy. Um, hashtag board certified. You're lucky I passed because you hung that out to dry for all of our listeners to hear. So yeah, we had no doubts. Blake, now that you are a board-certified reproductive endocrinologist, you actually get first dibs today, and we have the pleasure of having a special visitor to the podcast, an author from the article coming out in FNS Reviews. Why don't you tell us a little bit about it? Thank you, Pietro. So I'm very happy to introduce our guest that we have today, and I promised her that I would not 100% pronounce her name correctly in my Oklahoma accent, but this is Dr. Genevieve Genet. And she is at McGill University in Quebec, Canada. A little bit of background on her. She received her bachelor's in microbiology and immunology at McGill University and obtained her MD degree at University of Montreal. She did her internal medicine residency at the University of Laval and did an allergy immunology fellowship at McGill University as well. She did a reproductive immunology fellowship at the University of Toronto, and she is currently in the process of obtaining her PhD in experimental medicine at McGill. She established Canada's first university-based reproductive immunology clinic, which is now the reference center in Quebec for the evaluation of complex patients with unexplained infertility and recurrent pregnancy loss. And this is also, since 2020, Canada's only reproductive immunology fellowship program. Very cool. We're very happy to have you here today. So Genevieve, why don't you give us a brief overview of the findings of your study that was recently published in FNS Reviews entitled The Immunotherapy for Recurrent Pregnancy Loss, a Reappraisal. So the reason we were very interested in this type of subject is, as you all know, uh, first trimester pregnancy loss is a very common occurrence uh, occurring in around 10-15% of all pregnancies. However, recurrent pregnancy loss um, isn't something that occurs very often and it's very devastating to the couple. Um, So recurrent pregnancy loss, if we define it as three or more consecutive pregnancy losses, occurs in around 3% of couples and most of the time, so over 50% of the time, it remains unexplained. So, you know, these couples Um, have the very unsatisfactory answer of uh, we don't know what's going on keep trying Um, so more and more as you know science progresses and as we think about these types of uh, disorders we've realized over the last 60 years that the immune system is absolutely pivotal in the establishment and maintenance of a normal pregnancy so again over the last 60 or so years we've been looking into immune causes of pregnancy loss and therefore into therapeutics to prevent immune mediated pregnancy loss. The big problem is that we don't have adequate tests to diagnose uh, an immune 
mediated pregnancy loss and we don't have any immune tests to quantify it or to characterize it. Um, so when we do give patients immunomodulatory treatments or treatments to modify the immune system, it's done so on mostly a speculative basis because of things that have worked previously in the literature. And then the other huge problem that we have is that there are a lot of studies that have been done with such immunomodulatory therapies, but it's almost impossible to pre-select the patient population. And studies are very heterogeneous. So when we try to compare them, it's very difficult to uh, come to a conclusion. So what we wanted to do is really just summarize the status of the literature and see what type of evidence do we have behind certain interventions that we encounter regularly. So first off, we, we chose to look at progesterone because we routinely give progesterone to patients with recurrent pregnancy loss. And we actually did found that if you define recurrent pregnancy loss as three or more consecutive losses, progesterone actually does improve the live birth rate. So, you know, we've recommended progesterone for patients with recurrent pregnancy loss. Then we looked at aspirin. Um, aspirin, there's not that much uh, in terms of evidence-based medicine, but there is one study that was done by Schisterman and al, um, which does um, say that in patients that are adherent to aspirin or in patients with a baseline elevated CRP or um, C-reactive protein, they may benefit from aspirin. So we've actually made the recommendation that if there is no contraindication for aspirin administration, it be considered in patients with recurrent pregnancy loss. Those are the probably two interventions that we have a little bit more literature in terms of what we can and we cannot recommend. So then we looked at other immunomodulatory treatments like low molecular weight heparin that yes does have a mechanism in terms that it will stop blood coagulation, if you will, but it also has immunomodulatory properties and pro-angiogenic properties. Um, and if you go into the literature, there is, uh, you know, there's actually two um, systematic reviews that actually show that it might have some benefit for certain patients. So on a case-by-case -case basis, for example, in a patient that has later onset pregnancy losses um, in the absence of contraindications and with adequate medical follow-up, it might be something to consider. And then we also looked at uh, corticosteroids. So unfortunately, corticosteroids, there's really not that much proof that it does work. There's anecdotal evidence. So we made the recommendation that it can be considered as long as the patient is adequately monitored. So she has to not be obese, uh, no risk factors for diabetes, um, no risk factors for high blood pressure, and she has to be adequately monitored during the time that she received the steroids. Ideally, they have to be started prior to conception and they have to be stopped as soon as the patient hits her usual time of pregnancy loss with a gradual taper. And then the other recommendation that we made is uh, looking into the literature with intravenous immunoglobulins. If the intravenous immunoglobulins are started prior to pregnancy, there is evidence that it may increase um, the, the rate of live birth. So if we look at other interventions like human chorionic gonadotropin, um, intralipids, or uh, granulocyte colony stimulating factor, there really isn't any evidence in the literature that suggests that it does improve live birth rates. However, there is one retrospective study that started human chorionic gonadotropin in the luteal phase, and that was associated with an enhanced live birth rate. Uh, but there are a lot of confounding factors in, in that particular study. So it does merit um, a randomized control trial at some point. 
there is some evidence that immunomodulatory therapy works. And as long as the patients are well selected, so at least three unexplained miscarriages, a body mass index less than 35, less than 41 at the age of conception, a non-smoker, um, usually well selecting those patients and making sure that they're adequately followed for immunomodulatory therapies, it's worth trialing in the these patients just because we don't we're not in a position in which we can investigate these patients and really figure out what's going on yet it's coming there are many different studies that uh, are evaluating this diagnostic possibility but until we understand more about the immunopathogenesis of recurrent pregnancy loss it may be worth a trial thanks for going over that that that's really interesting and i really enjoyed reading through your paper and especially as Elon had mentioned before we started recording i like how each treatment was explained in terms of the pathophysiology as to why this may or may not help and and that was really interesting to me and so and this is a this is a tough area you know unexplained recurrent pregnancy loss is so frustrating for both providers and for patients but um, my question I have for you is because some of these things are and as you mentioned in your discussion on the paper that there's not a validated um, test that you say, yes, you have unexplained RPL and the likely etiology is altered immune system or you would benefit from an immunotherapy. So there's so many different types of treatments you all discuss in this paper. How do you select who would benefit from what? So that's actually a great question. Um, everything is really done by case-by-case -case basis. Usually the first approach I have to someone who has recurrent miscarriages is making sure that we're addressing lifestyle issues. So making sure that she has an adequate body mass index, making sure that she stops smoking, making sure that she's physically active, that she's eating correctly. And I'll usually start with aspirin and progesterone. So I usually start the aspirin prior to conception and I'll start the progesterone in the luteal phase. And usually I'll ask her to have what, or to try one pregnancy with that. And then if she fails, depending upon what type of miscarriage she has, is it really, really early? Is it a miscarriage at nine, 10 weeks? Do we have any evidence of thrombophilia? Is there any evidence of placental malperfusion? Then I usually consider low molecular weight heparin because most of the time when patients are referred to my clinic, they've already gone through you know seven, eight, nine miscarriages. I'll usually recommend to start with some kind of steroid. However, the steroid I will only administer to patients that are fertile, so that conceive within a period of three months. Um, and I'll start the prednisone at the same time that I'm starting my progesterone. And I'll usually continue it up to the viability ultrasound with a gradual taper over several weeks. And I usually do 10 to 20 milligrams. Um, in a patient that has had, uh, for example, side effects with a prednisone or in a patient that has metabolic risk factors, she's overweight, um, there's diabetes in the family, she has high blood pressure, and in the absence of contraindications, then I'll usually consider uh, Plaquenil or hydroxychloroquine. Uh, this is weight-based and I start at four to six weeks prior to conception and usually take it up to 12 to 20 weeks of gestation. In Quebec, we had access to intravenous immunoglobulin, and this is before the pandemic, and we were actually treating a lot of patients with recurrent pregnancy loss with intravenous immunoglobulin. Um, we're going to be submitting this article very soon, but we do have a 60% live birth rate with uh, intravenous immunoglobulin compared to an age-matched control population with similar obstetric histories. 
um, and we're trying to work to eventually have a randomized control trial with our protocol or to have it approved by the government for patients with um, idiopathic recurrent pregnancy loss who've really failed all other treatments. Um, so in a nutshell, that's pretty much what we do. Um, we don't use granulocyte polymerase stimulating factor. We don't use very much human chorionic gonadotropin. And um, in my clinic, I don't use intralipids, but I know that it's done elsewhere in, in Quebec. Very interesting. So what do you think next steps would be? Where do you think your next research steps will take you and where do we go from here? So uh, that's a great question. And that's exactly why I'm uh, doing my PhD while being a full-time physician and a mother of two. Um, I really want to find a diagnostic test. So right now what we're doing is uh, we're characterizing the immune landscape of patients with reproductive failure. So either recurrent pregnancy loss or recurrent implantation failure, idiopathic of course, um, and we're taking a mid-luteal phase uh, endometrial biopsy and a blood test, and we're correlating the immunophenotypes of those patients with those that have um, a normal fertility history um, at the same time of the menstrual period. And we're trying to figure out if there's any differences first off in terms of um, leukocyte, lymphocyte, or white blood cell populations, and how that changes with treatment, at least in the peripheral blood. So we're trying, number one, to prove that peripheral blood does not necessarily predict what's going on in the uterus, and then trying to find a biomarker that predicts outcomes with immunomodulatory therapy so that we can try and streamline the patients that would most benefit from immunomodulatory therapy to receiving it and maybe exclude some patients that won't. Because you have to also keep in mind that the majority of cases of recurrent pregnancy loss is probably due to the embryo. So abnormal embryo genetics, abnormal embryo quality. And in a very minute uh, percent of the population, we will have an immune problem. So I don't know if I'm going over the time that I'm supposed to go, but the immunology of implantation is absolutely fascinating. Um, so right after ovulation, you have this huge recruitment of immune cells to the endometrium. And those immune cells are actually educated or being educated by the hormones that are produced by the ovaries and the microenvironment in the endometrium. So your immune system is being trained to what to do for pregnancy. And that immune system is actually going to recognize the embryo, help the embryo implant and help proper placentation while telling the rest of the body to accept whatever paternal antigens are going to be expressed during pregnancy. So, you know, to have a problem with that, you have to have a lot of checks and balances that are being undone to have an immune mediated miscarriage or implantation failure. So again, these situations are very rare. Most of the time it's going to be an embryo problem. So that we also have to keep in mind. And that's what's very difficult about uh, treating these types of patients just because we don't have that diagnostic test or that diagnostic tool. But there's a lot of research that's being done around the world to uh, get those tools. Very interesting. Well, Genevieve, thank you so much for joining us today. We really, really appreciate it. And the work that you're doing is very interesting. I'll, I'll keep my eyes peeled for any future research that you're doing. Before we sign off, Daylon or Petra, did you all have any questions for our guest? I have a comment, which is that this is what I love about physician scientists is that it's not enough to know the treatment. You got to understand why you know, what the etiology and you got to understand the mechanism of the treatment. And I'm, I'm very pleased uh, to see really brilliant young people entering the fray as PhDs. Looking forward to that degree. Uh, you're going to be very productive. And it's a great segue to my article coming right up. So I thank you for uh, going over all the uh, general introduction there. Very fluent um, and, and brilliant presentation. Thanks for joining us. Well, thanks so much for the invite. It was a real pleasure.
Well, that's a tough act to follow. Um, Dalon, I know you don't have the benefit of having an author with us, but tell us a little bit about your article in FNS Science this month. Well, guys, like I said uh, in the outro there to the guest, uh, she really did me a huge favor with the introduction here. But of course, I will just retread some of that ground. As she said, numbers vary, of course. It's all a moving target, but less than a third of pregnancies make it to live birth, as we know, and around one to two to three percent, who knows? Uh, what the exact number is there, but around that percentage of women experience recurrent pregnancy loss, right? Um, and it varies as to what that's defined. Two, three or more pregnancies before 20 weeks of gestation. A lot of different definitions there, but the idea is generally the same. These numbers are in the ballpark. Uh, and leaving out, you know, embryonic chromosomal abnormalities, recurrent pregnancy loss can be attributed to many causes, uh, as our guest said, but, you know, that includes the genetic background of the mom, uh, there's anatomic, i.e. malarian factors that may play a role, endocrine issues, autoimmunity. But even accounting for all of these known associations, there's roughly 40-50% of the recurrent pregnancy loss that remains unexplained. And many groups have hypothesized that the unexplained cases could stem from an aberrant maternal immune response during implantation or placentation at the fetal maternal interface. This is all stuff we just talked about. But following this logic, Many investigations have tried to use this immune cell profile uh, of patient blood, in this case, peripheral blood, or in many cases, peripheral blood as a kind of window into the dysfunction. And these studies benefit from the fact that they can be really highly powered, right? Blood is easy to get. You can recruit these massive control cohorts. Uh, and in these studies, altered levels have been shown, but not to the degree that women with and without recurrent pregnancy loss can be robustly distinguished. And this is what we talked about. The diagnostic tool isn't quite there. Well, uh, Renat van der Molen's group in uh, the Netherlands reasoned that perhaps the failure to clearly establish the link results from the inability of peripheral blood to reflect the local immune cell environment at this level of the endometrium and or decidua. And this is what Genevieve was just talking about. Uh, she's going after these uterine biopsies. But in this case, um, Renat van der Molen's group, they went after menstrual blood on the logic that it offers the direct uh, conduit to the uterine immune cells and can be obtained from large cohorts on, again, a minimally invasive level. So that's what they did in this story uh, published recently in FNS Science called A Combination of Immune Cell Types Identified Through Ensemble Machine Learning Strategy Detects Altered Profile in Recurrent Pregnancy Lost, a pilot study. Um, and what they did in this case is they gathered peripheral and menstrual blood from patients with and without recurrent pregnancy loss, conducted flow cytometric profiling of the constituent immune cells, and ultimately showed that there were four cell types in the peripheral blood and six cell types in the menstrual blood that enabled accurate designation of these recurrent pregnancy loss patients um, with an area under the curve of 0.8. So these results suggest that menstrual blood may be the next frontier in diagnostics, uh, maybe a tool that Genevieve was talking about, although I'm sure this has occurred to her. We should talk to her about that later. This is not a completely new idea, as I'm alluding to, but it's applied nicely here, I think, for the unbiased designation of patients struggling with recurrent pregnancy loss, a really frustrating, demoralizing condition that causes anguish for both the patient and provider and for a significant proportion of women undergoing assisted reproductive technology. So I was excited to see this entry, you know, working towards circling around uh, diagnostic tools 
to, to provide a definitive answer uh, whether or not uh, this immune cell component is uh, underlying the, the phenotype there of recurrent pregnancy loss. Guys, what do you think? I love the idea that they're actually using menstrual blood. I think people have, like you said, Dale, on kind of perseverated on peripheral blood just because how easy it is to capture and chances are we already have a lot of it saved in a freezer somewhere so we could use it. But I think there's a big body of literature that suggests that the immune profile that you're getting in peripheral blood is very different than the immune profile you're getting in the uterus, particularly in the endometrium. And I think people just aren't super jazzed up about doing biopsies or something that's invasive to collect that information in the menstrual blood again, in menstruating patients, which is in all of our patients, um, is a great way to get some insight into what's happening inside the uterus from an immune perspective. So I think it's really, really novel. I guess the big question for me is how acceptable is it to patients to collect their own menstrual blood for research, to collect their own menstrual blood for, um, for a, a diagnostic test in a clinical setting? I think that's the part that's a little tricky, but it's a great way to get insight into what's going on into the endometrium and really get to the immune level that matters for an embryo to implant, not the stuff that's circulating in the peripheral blood. Yeah, I definitely agree. And I think you know, what we were talking about with Genevieve is there's not a validated biomarker to diagnose unexplained recurrent pregnancy loss. And I think this study is great because it provides some insight to uh, kind of opens the doors for future studies. If we can reproduce this study and it's reliable and we, we see it in larger cohorts of patients, then perhaps these are some validated biomarkers we can use. So we have all these treatments we just discussed, but how the heck do we even diagnose it? And that's the, the cat's still out of the bag in regards to that. So um, I think this is great and hopefully it leads us in the right direction to one day knowing what the test would be. Yes, very exciting. I think that, you know, Pietro's point is well taken that, you know, while not invasive, collection of menstrual blood is certainly cumbersome. If the value of the diagnostic is there, and these are patients who really want an answer, right? So I think the motivation is there uh, that it would be a, a, a good uh, avenue, although you know, recruiting all the controls might be a problem there. But what's really exciting to me is uh, that I think this represents the next frontier of diagnostics. You know, when these cell preparations are subjected, ultimately, I think it's, it's inevitable to this high throughput transcriptomic, genomic, even proteomic analysis. And granted, we're not there yet, but when this mega-omic era arrives, I, I anticipate that we're gonna have a, a diagnostic lever that identifies patient pathology on a more granular level with higher specificity and may even pinpoint uh, therapeutic approaches in these patients, as you alluded to, Blake. It may really uh, uh, provide a nice ancillary um, benefit there in, in, in trying to, to zero in on which of those which of those treatments will, will best serve each individual patient. So I, I love this type of breakthrough, I would say, uh, in terms of concept of how do we address these things and how do we start to generate those tools. Speaking a little bit about the patient experience, my article this month from FNS Reports is entitled The Impact of an Interactive Multimedia Educational Platform on Patient Comprehension and Anxiety During Fertility Treatment, a randomized controlled trial. This is by Dr. Abigail Bernard, as well as my buddies Steve Lindheim and Linnea Goodman um, out of the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. And the whole idea with this article was that anyone who's ever taken care of patients understands that consenting patients and truly educating and informing patients about what's about to happen with the fertility treatment is really, really hard. You're getting patients who are at baseline, stressed, worried, 
worried about the finances and there's significant knowledge gaps in what we as the clinicians know and what the patients are coming to the, the table with. And people have tried to look at these kinds of situations outside of ART, utilizing multimedia education interventions to help kind of close that gap, reduce stress, improve knowledge, improve comprehension of what's about to happen. And there's this great platform called Engage MD, which is a ART specific multimedia educational intervention. It's a series of brief educational modules followed by a comprehension assessment that are specifically teaching patients about IVF, ovulation induction, and IUI over kind of about a dozen small videos totaling to about 45 to 60 minutes of educational material. So what these authors decided to do is they decided to design an RCT around this engaged MD platform um, to see if they can improve patient comprehension during the consenting process, as well as patient well-being compared to just the traditional counseling that happens by physicians and nurses, which all of us are very comfortable with and all of our patients are constantly exposed to. So this RCT was conducted at UNC. They enrolled about 100 women between the ages of 18 and 45 who are undergoing their very first IUI or IVF cycle and randomized them either to receive kind of standard counseling or standard counseling with this access to the EMD platform, this educational tool, and followed this up with a series of comprehension assessment surveys, one at the beginning of their cycle after they've kind of completed their counseling education, again, at the end of their treatment cycle, and then followed all of this up with a anxiety inventory questionnaire. So they wanted to one, understand did comprehension improve and two, did this change the, move the dial at all in patient self-report of anxiety. So what did they find? They found that those patients who had access to this EMD educational tool, in addition to the standard counseling that they received had significantly higher comprehension scores at the end of treatment. And the higher comprehension scores were persistent at the end of treatment for those in the IVF EMD group, but was not seen in the OI IUI groups. And what this means is that the patients who really had kind of the biggest knowledge gap to cover, the patients who were undergoing IVF, kind of the hardest thing to wrap our head around and kind of the most intense treatment we have, uh, really showed that comprehension was better, uh, but not necessarily with the IUI and OI groups. These are interventions that I think are the, the kind of the delta for comprehension is a little lower. So it makes sense there. I think the interesting finding is what they did with anxiety. So they found that patients were anxious and they were anxious at all of the time points at the beginning of treatment, at the end of treatment, and anxiety actually increased for patients undergoing IVF um, compared to the patients undergoing IUI or OI. And I think the reason for that is, again, this is the most, it's kind of the Cadillac of treatments. It's the most comprehensive, most labor-intensive, time-intensive, cost-intensive treatment we have it's the one patients really understand the least about. So we, I think what this points out to me in this study is that there is a huge need for this in our patient population. We're about to talk about really complex stuff with our patients and the baseline anxiety that patients are bringing to that counseling is at baseline very, very high. And identifying the patients who need this, need more of it, I think that's really where the value for these interventions are. Um, I actually spoke with Dr. Lindheim after I read this paper just to get his two cents on it. And he said that they were really most interested on this kind of anxiety piece. And they're working with this company to see if there's a kind of a screening questionnaire at the beginning of a uh, EMD um, multimedia teaching strategy to help identify those patients that are most anxious and stand to benefit the most from kind of even more enhanced multimedia educational exposure to really kind of target that intervention to where it probably is gonna add the most value. And maybe that's work that we see published um, soon. 
I know, Dalon, you're not used to counseling patients. You're probably doing a lot of uh, mouse counseling, but I want to ask Blake, who, who unfortunately does have to counsel patients about IVF. Do you have tips or tricks? Are there, are there multimedia things or videos that you use in your practice? Or does this kind of sound like something that may fill a, a nice need for patients? I think that the the idea of this sounds, sounds very great. I think it sounds very helpful. I do use the, uh, I have a PowerPoint that I go over with patients whenever I'm talking with them. But I, I will admittedly say that when I'm done talking with them about IVF, I always feel like I need to have this nice little silver platter to hand to them that's very user-friendly and something that they can, you know, sleep next to at night and, and just read over and over and over and watch videos because IVF is such an anxiety-provoking thing. And even though you go over and, and talk with these patients about things for a very prolonged period of time, they still will only comprehend a certain percentage of it. And so I think it's nice, this concept of being able to even go back and look at these videos or the educational tool, I think that sounds really helpful. But the short answer to your, your question is I predominantly just use a PowerPoint presentation and we do have a couple of handouts that we give them, but uh, this sounds great. I like the concept of it. Yeah, I mean, new modes of communicating science, in your, your case, uh, medical information to patients, it's obviously something that we, I think, as a group invested a lot of thought into. It's kind of why we're doing this podcast. I think that represents this new wave of new media. Um, and it's clear this a new generation of trainees have really capitalized on these options in like an educational format, training and with COVID, raising the profile of emerging media and accelerating the adoption of these Zoom-like technologies for virtual spaces. Um, I think it's inevitable, right, that these new media are going to come about and for the most part are going to do a benefit. But I have to ask the question, does it work? And I think that's the question that these authors were trying to address. And maybe also, is it better, is the other question. Um, in this case, it's the delta between kind of zero and, and knowledge. So I, I think it's a no-brainer. But I, you know, just briefly, from a general standpoint, I was listening to this piece on NPR the other day where there's this assistant professor of media somewhere. He's talking to Kai Rizdal on Marketplace. And he was trying to give him this like tutorial on using the meta, you know, the meta virtual, formerly Facebook meta virtual platform to like simulate a meeting. And they're sharing this virtual space. And needless to say, it was a bit of a disaster. But one thing that the guy said, he resonated with me, was that when he teaches his students um, in a bizarre or novel virtual environment, and, and he used the example at the bottom of the ocean, the retention of the material that they got in that simulated environment was better. So like the novelty, I guess, kind of, uh, you know, made them more receptive to the knowledge or retain it better. So it seems like these virtual environments have benefits. I think the new media has a lot of benefits because it's complementary to traditional ways of educating, but still that part of me that's kind of circling the drain towards middle age has a few qualms, you know, is there anything being lost with the proliferation of these virtual learning environments? You know, what happened in the good old days when saltwater taffy cost a nickel, that type of thing. Um, I think it's mostly benefit though, particularly in this case, because as you said, uh, these patients, they, if they're struggling with anxiety, more knowledge can only be a good thing. So what I'm hearing from you, Dalon, is that you would like Blake to have a TikTok channel at the bottom of the ocean where he's producing IVF educational videos for patients. Is, is, do I have yes. that right? It I mean, is in a speedo that's, emphasis that's, on on the on the attire. Yeah, that's literally all I heard just now. And how much is saltwater taffy currently? I don't know. 
it's at least a dime, my friend. You know, I, th I think just to kind of run out this discussion, we don't often see RCTs in our field and we really don't often see RCTs on behavioral interventions that speak to the patient experience that aren't necessarily focused on a clinical outcome, but on a patient-centered outcome. And I think anxiety, patient education, comprehension are all just some of the most worthwhile goals we have with our patients. Because at the end of the day, not all of our patients will conceive. But if along the way, we can help reduce anxiety, increase comprehension, and just make the process easier for patients. I think for some, it definitely keeps them in the game for longer and gets them to success. And then for some of them, it softens the, the disappointment when infertility treatment doesn't work out over the arc of many cycles. Yeah, very true. And, and one other thing I was thinking of as well is how many times do you have patients that you hear that they also, even after you spend all this time counseling them, they go and Google things and look online and, oh, I saw on this blog, this patient said this, and, and perhaps having some this educational tool may even eliminate people Googling and going to all these blogs and getting all you know these interesting ideas that we have to then backpedal and explain why that's a bad idea and why that person's situation doesn't apply to you. You know, you, you hear these things very commonly. So, and I feel like those scenarios in and of itself, they'll create stress for the patient too. Like, oh, oh I saw a patient do this at this center and should I be doing this and this? So uh, perhaps this can eliminate some of that stress as well and stress for me having to explain these things. Both worthwhile goals. Yes. Gentlemen, as always, it's great to be on the podcast with you. I hope our listeners enjoyed our special guest. As we run out this podcast, just a reminder that all of these episodes live wherever you're listening to this podcast currently. You can always check out our companion episode of FNS on Air, where we run through the main journal's table of contents. And then always, if you're not following us on the Twitter, the Instagram, the Facebook, you can also find our content on LinkedIn. That's a new FNS offering if you're if you're out there. But until we meet again next time, Daylon Blake. Any final comments? As always, it's been excellent talking with you guys. I always enjoy it. See you all next time. This podcast was developed by Fertility and Sterility and the American Society for Reproductive Medicine as an educational resource and service to its members and other practicing clinicians. While the podcast reflects the views of the authors and the hosts, it is not intended to be the only approved standard of practice or to direct an exclusive course of treatment. The opinions expressed are those of the discussants and do not reflect the Fertility and Sterility family of journals or the American Society for Reproductive Medicine.